No, I'm going to watch you to make sure your legs work. Well, as they leave, good morning. I'm so glad to see you. So last week, we started a new series in the fourfold gospel. It's the core truths of the alliance. It's what we stand on. It's how we were founded. And we talked about A.B. Simpson's desire for the deeper life. And out of that deeper life came these four truths of Christ, our Savior, Sanctifier, Healer, and Coming King. And we talked about how over the next couple of weeks, we are going to... We're going to go through those. We're going to talk about them. We're going to process through them. Now, what we say in a sermon is limited, so let me get you this. I want to invite you out to our adult Sunday school class uh, where we are going to go deeper into what each of these mean. Um, the Alliance has put out a, a, a great curriculum just to, to talk about these and what they stand for. And so I want to invite you that if you want to know more and you want to go deeper, come out to our adult Sunday school class where we will talk about these. Um, but this morning, we are going to... Talk about the cross. If you look at our logo, there is one of the images is a cross. And we're going to talk about what it means for Christ to be our Savior this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, open up with me to Acts chapter 4. Sheila, as I read this, can you just advance the slides for me? So starting in verse 1 of chapter 4, and it says this, While Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. And these leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there is a resurrection of the dead. They arrested them, and since it was already evening, put them in jail until morning. But many of the people who heard their message believed. So the number of believers now totaled about 5,000 men, not counting women and children. The next day, the council of all the rulers and the elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. And Annas, the high priest, was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in the two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus the Nazarene, the man you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in Scripture where it says, The stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the numbers of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in scriptures. They also recognized them as men who had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing right there among them, there was nothing the council could say. So they ordered Peter and John out of the council chamber and conferred them among themselves. What shall we do with these men? They asked each other. We can't deny that they have performed the miracle sign, and everybody in Jerusalem knows about it. But to keep them from spreading their propaganda any further, we must warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called the apostles back and they commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Do, do you think God wants us to obey you rather than him? We cannot stop telling you about everything we have seen and heard. And the council then threatened them further. 
But they finally let them go because they didn't know how to punish them without starting a riot. For everyone was praising God for this miraculous sign, the healing of a man who had been lame for more than 40 years. Jesus, this morning, God, Lord, I ask, Jesus, that your word comes alive, that you would speak to us, Jesus. God, I recognize and I admit that I am so unworthy to proclaim your word. But God, you've given it for a reason. And that reason is the point to Jesus. So God, this morning, Father, I pray that as we gain knowledge of understanding of scripture, Jesus, I pray that the most important thing that we experience today is being with you, Jesus. May our lives be transformed by us spending time with you this morning. So God, our desire is to intimately know you and to grow in you this morning. And so Lord, teach us and equip us to be bold and share our faith. In Jesus' name, amen. So it was 1999. Um, I had limited exposure to scripture, limited exposure to the Bible. Uh, We went to a couple CCD classes, but we ended up getting kicked out because my mom never tied to the church. So we ended up leaving. So I've never really heard the name of Jesus. And one day, these two ladies, and some of you have heard this, they came to our door and they knocked on the door. And my mom opened it up. And they let her, they, she let them in. These strangers, total strangers of random people. But they let them in, one, because of a box of donuts. They brought food. At the time, our family was struggling, and, and we would take anything. If, if you showed that you cared for our family, my mom was more willing to trust you. So she let them in, and at the time, we had a picnic table, a legit picnic table in our kitchen. And so one of the ladies named Joy Jones sat me and my younger siblings down at the kitchen table. And she began to tell me about this man named Jesus, of a Jesus that loves us, a Jesus that died for us, and explained that the cross was exactly that, a new beginning, a fresh start, forgiveness. And that night I learned about a a, a man who absolutely loved me more than my parents, and at 11 years old, I accepted Jesus. It was like the greatest thing in the world. And, and, and think back to that moment that you made the decision to follow Jesus and the joy that just welled up and the things that were happening, the excitement were there. And I remember that my first prayer ever was, Jesus, I want everyone to experience the joy that I'm experiencing because it is the greatest thing I've ever felt in my life. And it was that moment that I desired to pursue Jesus. I wanted to know more. Like, I had no idea fully who Jesus was other than the fact that he died for me on the cross. And so I wanted to pursue him. And so I I dedicated my, my early lives and even now to pursuing Jesus. But through that, I learned this exact truth that we're going to learn today is that salvation is placed in no one else other than Jesus. Don't forget the moment that you accepted Jesus, that you made that decision to follow him. You could have accepted him and then later on made that decision. Don't forget that. Because it's that moment of feeling, that moment of desire that that should drive you to, to, to proclaim him, to talk about him. But maybe some of you, you've never made that decision because you never truly understand what it meant for Jesus to die for you. You've never met what it understood for, for Jesus to, to love you more than anyone else. 
And I hope today would be a day that that comes, that understanding comes. But as we look at this passage, Peter and John, they were being arrested. And if you look at the chapter previous, in Acts chapter 3, they, they healed a, a crippled beggar who, who was lame for more than 40 years. And, and, this, and, and this word got out as to why he was healed and what was happening. And the religious leaders at the time, and the Sanhedrin, which the Sanhedrin was, was essentially the supreme court of what we have now. They were like the top rulers. And part of those rulers were, were the high priests. And I think it's funny because at this time, while it says that Annas was the high priest, technically he wasn't the high priest. His son Caiaphas was. Because if you look back earlier in the Gospels, you'll see that, that Caiaphas was really the one in charge. And so when, when Jesus was, was in trial, he went to Annas and then he was sent to Caiaphas and, and all these things were happening. But yet Annas, even though he wasn't the high priest anymore, had power. He had control. He still had word. And so this group of relatives uh, of the high priest, they arrested Jesus and they were conferring, what do we do? What's going on? And so they approached the disciples and they said, by what power can you do this? What is going on? By what power can you claim this? This, this power of healing, this idea that Christ has risen from the dead. And I love the disciples because they were brutally honest. They weren't Midwesterns and were passive aggressive in their approach. They said it how it was and they pretty flat out said, Jesus whom you've crucified, who've risen from the dead has given us this power. <laughs> he was calling them out. Like it was you who did this. And when it talks about, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this idea of cornerstones and the stone that was thrown away. And we talked about that when builders are building, they examine the stones and the most perfect stone becomes the cornerstone. And so he talked about how Jesus was that stone that, that people didn't think was worthy. And so they threw it away. And it's that stone that became our cornerstone. That stone that began this movement that, that you could see is happening. It says that, that they were talking about Jesus and 5,000 men, not including counting women and children, were coming to Jesus. Now add each of them having a, a wife and each having a kid. That's 15,000 people and possibly more of people who were coming to know Jesus. And so there was this movement that was happening, this advancement that was happening and they didn't mince words. They, they proclaimed with boldness that, that Jesus was the one that was giving us this power. And if you remember last week, we began this story of talking about the globe behind our image. And we talked about the Great Commission. And we talked about how, how this power that, that is now happening has come from Jesus when Jesus says, all authority on earth has been given to me, and I'm now giving it to you. And when you receive the power of the Holy Spirit, Acts 1.8, when the power of the Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses, and you will proclaim the truth. And so the power that they were walking in has come from Jesus. And so these disciples, passionate about this, were going on and they were talking about how Christ is the only way to salvation, that there is no other way. Now some of you here today, or maybe you have friends who have asked the question, 
how can you believe this? I mean, wasn't the resurrection story just a fabricated story? Like, didn't someone steal the body and totally go off with him? And, and like, it, wasn't it, it, it just a, a urban legend? But first off, let me tell you a couple things as to why I, I believe, and many Christians believe that the resurrection was true. The first one starts at the day of the resurrection when the women were the first to to see that Jesus wasn't there anymore. And they were the first to go and proclaim the gospel. And here's the thing. They didn't go to another town to proclaim the good news of Jesus. They proclaimed in the exact city that Christ was risen from the dead. But here's the thing. They were second-class citizens. They technically couldn't do this. And for writers uh, of disciples and others to write this in their in their in their story, in the Gospels, like, they would have been made fun of, they would have been challenged, they would have been mocked for writing that women were the first to testify. But yet this was happening. The women were the first to talk about Jesus in the same exact city that, that, that Christ was buried and rose from the dead. People could have gone to the grave at any point, and they could have seen this. But they didn't. Because Christ wasn't there, because he was risen, he wasn't taken, he wasn't stolen, he wasn't kidnapped. I don't know about you, but I'm pretty sure I'm not going to want to take a dead body and go hide it somewhere. Can you imagine the smell and the stench and all those things that were happening? But here's the thing, in this same exact city, the Christianity, the, the followers of Jesus exploded. And this is exactly what's happening. Secondly, it takes years for a legend to start. It takes 70 to 100, even more years for an urban legend to start. But here's the thing we know about scripture, and we know about dates, and we know about factual things, is that the Gospels and the book of Acts and even Paul's letters were all written by people who lived during Jesus' life. They experienced the resurrection. They saw it. And they were the ones that, that were writing this down, exactly what they, they saw. This was within a few years of doing this. This wasn't 70, 80 years later. This was within the time that, that of after Jesus died. And so there were eyewitnesses' accounts of, of pursuing this, of seeing this actually happen. And thirdly, even Jewish and pagan writers would admit that Jesus existed and that the grave was empty. But it's only Christianity that would claim that it was empty because Jesus rose from the dead. And fourthly, Christianity is the only religion that identifies the problem of humanity to the T of what is going on in our world. And it's the only religion that, that gives a solution to the problem. But here's the thing. Not only do they give a solution... But, but it's totally opposite of what most people think. Most people think you've got to earn this. But, but Christianity is saying it's already been done for you. I love you. I want to show you grace. And I want to forgive you. And it's already done. You don't have to earn anything. You don't have to earn the love of Jesus because it's already given. It's the only religion that talks about the solution to a problem that we see in the world. And it's the only religion that says the God that we worship is risen. I don't know about you, but Muhammad is dead, Buddha is dead, Gandhi is dead. All these guys are dead, and Jesus is the only one living. And I don't know about you, but I would rather follow someone who's living than someone who's dead. But I know for some of you, this still may be hard to grasp, these statements, the reality of the resurrection. But I want to tell you, look, sermons are limited, but I would love to buy you coffee and talk about this, or lunch, or dinner. And I would love to sit down and pursue this further. 
But the reality is, is that for many people, the atonement is real, and they've experienced it, and they see it. And so what is the reality of the atonement? What are we talking about? First off, Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. Within this verse, there are a few truths that I want to point out. And the first one is this, is that salvation is universal and inclusive. What do I mean by that? The Bible says, for anyone who believes in Jesus, they will be saved. The Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one only son, that whoever believes, this isn't, well, just, if, if just a, you know, I die for just a select few, uh, these guys over here, if they believe, but everyone else, no. It's anyone who believes. Here's the thing about um, the revivalist and, and Simpson during the time that the alliance was put together, they, they, they didn't stand on, on what many people believe is limited atonement. They believed that salvation was open to everyone who believes. And so salvation is for everyone. And so it is universal. It is inclusive in the sense that anyone can come to know Jesus if they believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose again. That is the reality. But second is this, is that salvation is exclusive. Not only is it inclusive, but it's exclusive. Jesus is the only way to heaven. There is no other way. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no other name under heaven, nobody that, that can come to the Father except through me. And so the disciples were saying that, that, that you can believe this, Annas. You can believe this, Caiaphas. You can believe that Jesus died on the cross. It's there. But Jesus is the only way. The things that you guys are doing, the way that you guys are walking, doesn't lead to Jesus. Matter of fact, it leaves the opposite direction. But here are some of the things we need to understand about salvation and the atonement. Is that the atonement isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. Jesus didn't die just to keep you from hell. Jesus died to invite you into a deeper life, to invite you into the life that you were created for, because he knows that in Jesus, you can be yourself. I don't know about you, striving to find out who I am. I, this is, you know, when I was a youth pastor, this was a big thing of students trying to figure out who they are and, and what they believe. And one of the truths that as youth pastors and others we talk about is that to find out who they are, they first have to find Jesus. Because in Jesus, they're going to find out who they are. They're going to find out the truth of, of what they were called for. And so... They need to understand that, that, that salvation is not a get-out-of-hell-free card. While salvation saves us from eternity away from Jesus, the ultimate goal isn't that. The ultimate goal is a relationship that God desires with you. See, we were created for a relationship with God. We were created for unity with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we need to understand is this also is that the ultimate object of the atonement wasn't humanity. The ultimate object of, of, of the atonement was, was the, the entire Godhead being true to themselves and saying true to the righteousness of the divine law that they created. And so because God is a holy, just God, he has to punish sin. Sin is not allowed where he is. That is why salvation is real, because he had to, he, he had to provide the solution that, that would appease the divine law, that would appease the holiness of God. See, 
Uh, Bernie Well, one of the writers of, of one of the Alliance books, says this, The father did not need to be appeased. It was the penalty of the divine law that had to be satisfied. Because the law that God created as a holy God, he had to do something about sin. And that is why he has to punish it to the extreme. You know, when we break a law, we're fined or arrested or, or worse, things happen, right? But when God being holy, being pure, for him, the punishment was so extreme because holiness and sinfulness cannot go together. And so the ultimate unfortunate outcome is that if we don't believe in Jesus, the punishment of sin is eternal separation from Jesus. And the atonement was a deliberate choice by the Godhead. While Jesus struggled and wrestled with it in the garden, his ultimate thing is, Lord, may your will be done. And it was a choice. So the renovation of the human character, the heart was not a primary, but it was a result of the death and resurrection of Jesus. The ultimate goal of the atonement was to bring glory to God. It was about him staying true to who he was. Like I said, justice had to be served. It's always about the divine. It's always about Jesus. Always. And here's the great thing. We are blessed to have it. Because here's the reality. A.B. Simpson says, the atonement or Christ's sacrifice stands at the very entrance of all of our access to community with God. The atonement of Jesus Christ gives us direct access to, to God himself, the creator of the universe. Everything is found in the atonement. Every gift, every joy in life, every peace, every hope is found in Jesus. And that is the beauty, is that when we accept Jesus, it allows us entrance into the holies of holies, into, into God himself. And that is the beautiful thing about the blood of Jesus. But you might be asking yourself, yeah, that sounds beautiful. But how could someone love me with all of my past mistakes? How could someone love me with the current life that I'm living and everything that's happening and everything I'm doing? And, 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 and how, if I can't forgive myself, how can a God love me and forgive me? Here's the beautiful thing about salvation. Is that all your past issues, your dirt, your hurt, it's all laid out for Jesus. That's the beautiful thing about the gospel is that when we open up scripture, your mistakes, your, your dirtiness, your, everything that, that, that is blemishing you is laid out. In the end, Jesus isn't saying, well, I don't want you because of these sins. He's not saying, I don't want you because you, you've harmed this person or you made this mistake or, or, or you're living this way. Jesus is saying that I want to take all of this and I want to clean it. I want to redeem it. I want to, I want to make you new. I want to forgive you. But so many times what's keeping you from coming to Jesus is the fact that you can't forgive yourself. But I want you to know that Jesus desires to forgive you. If God himself is the one that created you, and God himself is the one that created the law that we continually on a daily basis choose to break, 
If he's the one that do that, and he's saying that, that even though you broke it, and yes, this is the punishment, but here's the solution. This is what I'm doing, and, and I want you to come. I want to be a part of that. I want to heal that. I, I want to redeem that. John 6, 37 through 40 says, All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Jesus, talking about the bread of life in this chapter of John 6, is saying that anyone who comes to me regardless of what you've gone through, I want you to come to me as you are. Bring your baggage. Bring what's holding you down. Bring the weight. Bring, bring the, 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 the worriness, the, the, the anxiety, the stress, all these things. And I want to walk it with you. I want to be the power that drives you. I want to be the, the forgiveness that allows you to forgive yourself. I want to be that. Well, if God is so loving, how come there's evil? How come all these things are happening? And this is what I'm going to say about it. When God created humanity, he gave them a choice. He laid out the guardrails. He laid out the consequences. He laid it all. But they chose to make a decision that goes contrary to God's divine law. And as human beings, regardless of what Adam and Eve did, every single day we make decisions that go against that. And as a result of that, our deserving of his punishment, it's eternal separation from Jesus. But here's the thing. If God takes away some evil, he has to take it all away. And if God takes it all away, he takes away our freedom to choose. And if he takes away our freedom to choose, then it's forced love. And I don't know about you, but I'm not sure if I can love a God who forces me to love him. But God being God, creator of all things, he's just, he's holy. He, he's able to create what the law is and the punishment behind it. But he is saying, I've given a solution, and that is Jesus. And so will you choose to lay all your baggage and, and remove it and give it to Jesus and allow Jesus to heal that, to forgive that, to redeem that? That is a choice that you have to make. God is standing there saying, I want you. Hello, like this is the direction you're going, but with me, you can go this direction. And you might be here, well, how? How do we accept Jesus? First and foremost, we need to realize that we need a Savior. We need a Savior because of our mistakes, because of our decisions, not because of Adam and Eve, not because of, of, of past uh, biblical characters or, or your mom or your dad, but the fact that you need a Savior because of your decisions that you are making that go contrary to God's law. And we must willingly invite Jesus to be our Savior. And we must willingly believe that he is able to forgive us, that he died on the cross for our sins, that he was risen from the dead, that just the disciples were talking about the, the idea that Jesus is raised from the dead. We must come to Jesus. We must repent and turn from our sins. We must believe that Jesus has forgiven us. When you confess your sins to Jesus, you must go away believing that Jesus forgave you because the Bible says that he has if you truly mean repentance and confession. And importantly, salvation comes by abiding in Jesus. 
J.D. Greer said this, and, I, and I've said it before, and I want to remind you of this truth, that there's nothing you can do that will make God love you more, and there's nothing you can do that will make God love you less. There's nothing. God loves you because of God, not because of what we've done or haven't done. And so what, when, when you accept Jesus, what are the promises? What, what, are, what are what Scripture is promising, right? They promise that we're forgiven, that our guilt is gone, that we have peace with God, that God's, God's wrath is satisfied, that we've been justified, that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, that we are new creations, that we have eternal life, that we have been adopted by God, that the Holy Spirit lives in us, that Jesus is our advocate, that nothing can separate us from God's love, that death has no more sting over us, and that we have an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. These are just some of the promises that when we accept Jesus. Here's the thing about Jesus that we see in Scripture, is that Christ is an all-powerful Savior that desires to invite you into freedom in Him, that invites you into a deeper life. That when we come to Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us from that love. Nothing. These are the truths that the disciples were getting out when they said that there is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. But there's another part that I want to talk about. But here's the truth. The atonement becomes a reality in our lives because of the presence of Jesus. The atonement becomes a reality in our lives because of the presence of Jesus. And, and, and you see this going further. In Acts 4.13, it says, The members of the council were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, for they could see that they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. They also recognized them as men who have been with Jesus. They have no special training, and they've been with Jesus. That's where their power is coming from. That is exactly where it's coming from. Let me see a raise of hands. How many of you guys have gone to Bible school to study the Bible? Three or four? Here's the beautiful thing about the gospel is you don't have to go to school to proclaim the good news of Jesus. You don't have to have a Bible degree or a pastoral degree or any other degree from a Bible school to proclaim the name of Jesus. I mean, literally they're saying that these disciples have no knowledge of the scriptures, but yet they have boldness. And people are coming to know Jesus, not because of their knowledge, but because they've been with Jesus. Everything lines back to Jesus. Their power, their understanding, their desire, their passions have come because they've been with Jesus. Let me ask you a question. Have you guys been with Jesus? Do you spend time with Jesus? That is the beautiful thing, is that salvation, the atonement, becomes a reality in the presence of Jesus. And the more that we spend time with Jesus, the more the, the reality of the atonement becomes a reality in our lives as it transforms us to be more like Jesus. And we're going to see that in next week, two weeks. But salvation begins in Jesus. And it continues in Jesus. And it ends in Jesus. And everything is about Jesus because Jesus is the beginning and the end. And if Jesus is the beginning and the end, everything in between is all about Jesus. And so the disciples were with Jesus. And we need to spend... Here, here's, here's the reality. And I see so many Christians, and I don't know about you, but my Facebook is always lit up of people trying to prove the existence of God. The reality, the first and foremost, the reality is, is that we don't need to prove the existence of God because God has already done that. 
God has already proven his existence in everything that's happening in the world in creation. While understanding and defending your faith is so important, I think so many times we need to stop worrying more about proving the existence of God and worry more about pursuing Jesus. Because when we pursue Jesus and we've been with Jesus, the power to proclaim the good news of Jesus comes out of that. And so in your studies, it's so easy as pastors, man, it's so easy for us to, to, to read the Bible because it's our job. I get paid to study this. I get paid to read this. But here's the thing. My time with Jesus cannot be what I'm paid to do. My time with Jesus needs to be intentional. It needs to be me spending time with Jesus because none of this matters. And I can't bring the word to you and I can't have the power to preach it if I'm not spending time with Jesus. I could spend so much time saying, okay, what does this mean? What's the history of this? What does it mean by 5,000 men and not women? What does that look like? Let me study the, 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 the historical background of the city that this is all happening in. Let me talk about, let me study the Sanhedrin. Let me study the Sadducees. I can keep going. But the reality is, if I'm not spending time with Jesus, none of this matters. My ministry doesn't matter if I'm not spending time with Jesus. And so first and foremost, as believers, if we've believed in Jesus, salvation is found in that. I, I honestly believe true believers are those that desire to pursue Jesus. If you say you're a believer but have no desire to, to discover Jesus in his word, I'm going to question that. Because if you believe that Jesus died and rose again, then you're going to desire to know who he is. You're going to desire to know more about him. And so are you pursuing Jesus if you claim to know Jesus? Are you pursuing him? Are you reading the scriptures not to just get knowledge, but are you pursuing the scriptures to find Jesus? Are you looking at everything? This story is all about Jesus. The Old Testament writings were important because intentional. It was all about Jesus. And secondly, I want to I finish with this, is, is that... Not only were disciples with Jesus, but their power came from Jesus. And here's my question for you. Are you willing to be bold for Jesus? I'm not saying to stand your ground because the government's asking for you to shut down Sunday morning services uh, because of a health crisis. But are you willing, the time is going to come when the government's going to say that you can't preach Jesus that you can't preach salvation, that you can't do these things. And when that time comes, that's when we need to stand. Because the reality through COVID, the government never asked for us to stop preaching Jesus, to stop worshiping. They've asked us to do it creatively, but they've never said stop preaching Jesus. But there may come a day when the government's going to say, you can't preach Jesus anymore. What are we going to do? Are we going to fight back? Are we going to stand firm? They asked the disciples to say to stop, stop preaching what we believe is propaganda. And Peter and the disciples were like, we can't do that. Because God is our authority and God has asked us to keep preaching the gospel. But the second that happens, that's when we as Christians need to step up. And are we willing to be bold? But see, we can't be bold unless we spend time with Jesus. Transformation, persuasal, all these things, when, when you talk to people, they, they don't matter if, if ultimately you're not spending time with Jesus. As believers, our goal should be to spend time with Jesus. And out of that comes the power to change lives. 
but I can go to anyone and I can say all the hall knowledge. I can study apologetics all day long and I can go and try to defend the faith. But if I'm not spending time with Jesus, none of that matters. Because if I'm not living what I'm preaching, there's a disconnect. So the power comes when we spend time with Jesus. Just like these disciples, they were recognized as men who were with Jesus. They had no knowledge of scripture. They, they, these were disciples who, who, who fell out of school, all these things that are happening, and yet they were the ones to change the world. Why? Because they've been with Jesus. The atonement of Jesus and his resurrection, this cross represents all that Christianity is. Everything about us. It identifies what our relationship with Jesus is. Salvation is an invitation to a deeper life that starts with a new beginning. Salvation is the new beginning. It's not the end result. Salvation is not the end result. And what we're going to learn in two weeks is that sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. Because we see in Scripture that, that you've been saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. There is a, a progressive form of salvation. There is three parts of it. And sanctification, which is the process of becoming more like Jesus, of being set apart, is that second phase of it. But salvation is just the beginning. It's not the end result. And so as we continue in this study, my challenge for you is to be with Jesus because that is where power comes from. Let's pray. Jesus, you are good. You are merciful. You are gracious. God, and I pray, Father, that you would get that glory that our power would come from spending time with you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand as we sing the closing song.